This is the Mayo Clinic Talks podcast. On Thursdays, now through the end of the year, we'll be re-releasing our popular opioid series. To claim your state-required CME credit and to find all of these episodes, visit ce.mayo.edu forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening. And now to Dr. Chutka. This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. For years, healthcare providers routinely prescribed hormonal therapy for the management of women with postmenopausal symptoms, as well as to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease and treat osteoporosis. Then, in 2002, the Women's Health Initiative was published and our views of hormonal therapy changed. Parts of the study's findings were criticized, leading to confusion as to whether hormonal therapy was as effective as we assumed, as well as whether hormonal therapy was exposing women to excessive health risks. To help us sort out the benefits and risks of hormonal therapy in women, we're joined by Dr. Ekta Kapoor, a male clinic internist and specialist in the Menopause and Women's Sexual Health Clinic. Thank you for joining us today, Ekta. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Let's start by talking about some of the physiologic changes and anatomic changes that occur at menopause, whether it be a natural menopause or surgical, as a result of hormonal changes. Sure. So the main physiologic and anatomic changes of menopause are a direct consequence of estrogen deprivation, very simply stated. But as you can imagine, with the natural menopause, these changes happen over a period of time, months to years. So it's a slower process. In contrast to that, with surgical menopause, the changes are abrupt. So one day a woman has her ovaries and the next day she doesn't. So these hormonal changes are very abrupt that leads to more severe symptoms and more dramatic changes. So in terms of what exactly happens as a woman goes through her journey of what we call perimenopause or menopause transition, there is tremendous fluctuation in the estrogen levels. And then comes the final menstrual period after which the estrogen level or the estradiol, which is the main estrogen that a woman makes, becomes undetectable. So most of the changes that you see in a woman's uh, physiologic function and anatomy they are a direct consequence of uh, estrogen deprivation. So what are those? The most common symptoms of menopause would be vasomotor symptoms, so hot flashes, night sweats. The other things that go along are sleep disturbances, which are very, very common in women going through menopause transition and postmenopausally. Now, some of this is a direct consequence of lack of estrogen, but there are a lot of other things that play into sleep disturbances in midlife women. So it's a very complex issue. Then mood changes, particularly in women who've declared themselves to have uh, hormone-sensitive mood problems. What do I mean by that? So women who have premenstrual symptoms history, so who have decline in their mood right before the, their menses, are sensitive to their hormone levels when it comes to their mood. Women who have a history of postpartum depression, so this is the group that has hormonally sensitive mood issues, if you will. So they are more prone to have depression around the time of menopause. So this could be either de novo depression, meaning in a woman who's never had depression has these depressive symptoms, or it could be a woman who has a history of depression for years and may have been stable on treatment, but now all of a sudden she destabilizes. 
So that's one. Then the other fairly common complaint in these perimenopausal and particularly postmenopausal years is sexual dysfunction. And that too is multifactorial. It could be because of mood problems, sleep, sleeping difficulties leading to fatigue, relationship conflicts, all the midlife problems being in the sandwich generation, and then genitourinary syndrome of menopause. What do I mean by that? By that, vaginal dryness leading to discomfort with sexual intercourse can lead to sexual dysfunction. So these are some of the symptoms that sort of come to the forefront. The other one that I failed to mention, which oftentimes ends up being a very big concern for women, even though that may not be the most frequent symptom they are experiencing, is weight gain. Now, menopause cannot be directly implicated in weight gain, but it does lead to some body fat redistribution changes. And what I mean with that, by that is that simply stated, women tend to have more belly fat after menopause, which has its own consequences. So these are some of the physiologic and anatomic changes that you can expect for women going through menopause and those who are postmenopausal. So based on what you're saying, there's probably no one definite date of someone going through a natural menopause. It, probably, it must happen just gradually over months, over a year, I imagine. In a sense, yes. The transition happens over months to years. But by definition, menopause is that final menstrual period, which is always defined, as you can imagine, in hindsight. So in other words, there's no way of knowing when a given woman is having her final menstrual period that this is it. You can't identify it with any biological or clinical or laboratory parameter. Mm -hmm. It's only when she's gone one full year without having a period that you can go back and say, okay, that was the final menstrual period. Okay. Yeah. Well, what are the main benefits of hormonal therapy and who should we consider for hormonal therapy? And that's a million dollar question. Yeah. It's a loaded question right there. So as I said, most of the symptoms of menopause are because of estrogen deprivation. So it would make sense to think that if you give estrogen back to the woman, most of these symptoms would be taken care of. But the question that the WHI really brought up was, is this a safe intervention though? That you know you can give the estrogen back, take care of the symptoms, but is it safe to do that with respect to the risk of cardiovascular disease, with respect to the risk of breast cancer? Those were the two main questions that were posed by the WHI results. So here is what we have learned over the last two decades or so since, or even more than that, nearly three decades now since the WHI results were out. That when it comes to estrogen therapy, timing is everything. And what do I mean by that? Now, just to let the audience know here that the average age of the woman that was enrolled in the WHI trial was 63 years. Hmm? And if you think about it, the average age of menopause for a woman is 51 years in our continent. So you see the discrepancy? So the average age of the woman for whom we consider hormone therapy because she's sitting in our office and is miserable with hot flashes is right around late 40s, early 50s. But the average age in the main trial was 63. So the experts now believe that part of the main reason why we saw the adverse outcomes that we saw in the WHI with respect to an increased risk in heart disease, et cetera, was because the age of the average woman in that study was much higher. As a matter of fact, when we have looked at, or when the experts have looked at the WHI results based on the age of the women, what they have seen is that when they look at younger women, and by that in menopausal world, I mean women between the ages of 50 to 60, hormone therapy not only did not increase the risk of heart disease, 
it may even have been protective actually. And that's something that's not highlighted enough, and it's a pity that it's not highlighted enough. But the data are becoming clear that hormone therapy, in fact, for these younger women, which I repeat again, is between the ages of 50 to 60 years, perhaps reduces the risk of heart disease, it decreases all-cause mortality. So which intervention out there, you know, we talk about aspirin, we talk about statins for men reducing the risk of heart disease. When these data have been looked at in women in particular, we do not see any cardiovascular risk reduction with aspirin or statin. So the truth be known, hormone therapy is the only intervention that has actually shown a reduction in the risk of coronary artery disease in these so-called young postmenopausal women. Interesting. So to answer your question for whom should we consider, so if we have this a young woman sitting in our office, late 40s, early 50s, who's miserable with hot flashes, the counseling that I offer to her is that estrogen therapy will certainly help alleviate these symptoms because it's the most powerful therapy out there for hot flashes. But you know what? We may have some added benefits, which include reduction in all-cause mortality, reduction in the risk of heart disease, Definitely reduction in the risk of osteoporosis. And the data are now emerging that there is some sort of a timing hypothesis for prevention of Alzheimer's disease also, which is actually a disease of the older women. Mm -hmm. So a lot of selling points for the younger women. So timing is everything. Well, let's talk a little bit about how we, be, how we should prescribe hormonal therapy. Uh, I know it's different in a patient who has a uterus versus one who has had a hysterectomy. How should we prescribe in those two different populations? Sure. So uh, first of all, you know, estrogen is the main hormone therapy that needs to be prescribed for symptom alleviation and for long-term benefits. So that obviously has to be a part of any hormone therapy regimen. So the question that comes off right off the bat is oral versus transdermal. Mm -hmm. Conventionally, we've used the oral preparations because that's what was available. But we know that transdermal, meaning when hormone therapy is given through the skin, is a safer approach because it is associated with a lower risk of stroke, hypertriglyceridemia, so high triglycerides, and uh, risk of clotting problems. So therefore, estrogen given through the skin is safer. Now back in the day, oral estrogen used to be cheaper than the skin preparations, that's why it was preferred and that's pretty much what was available. But now even these transdermal preparations, the patches and the gels, etc., are generic. So they're not as expensive. So transdermal any day to be preferred over oral unless the experience for the particular patient is that they're not absorbing very well from the transdermal route. And how would you know that? Their symptoms probably won't get better. You check a level, the level is really not going up. That's pretty much the only patient, or if somebody has an allergic response to transdermal. That's when I start thinking of oral. As a, as a default is to use the transdermal route. Now to answer your question about hysterectomy versus not, the other hormone that we think about as part of our hormone therapy regimens is a progestogen, which is essentially required for endometrial protection. So if a woman does not have a uterus, she does not need the progestogen, versus if she has a uterus, she needs the progestogen. What are the progestogen options? It could be either progesterone, the bioidentical hormone, or it could be a hormone containing IUD, like Mirena, for example, or the old-fashioned way, medroxyprogesterone acetate, MPA, the progestogen that was used in the WHI, but we are moving away from using that because of its adverse 
profile. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of side effects and long-term adverse effects. So it's not a preferred progestogen. What adverse effects does progestogens have? Are they are they the bad boy in all of these uh, studies, or do they are they an innocent bystander? An excellent question. Potentially, at least based on the WHI, there we used the medroxyprogesterone acetate, MPA, and that was believed to be the bad player with respect to the breast cancer risk because women who were on estrogen alone, in fact, had a reduced risk of breast cancer, if you will. It wasn't significant, but women on estrogen alone had fewer breast cancers compared to women who were on placebo. But in the other arm, where the women were both on the conjugated equine estrogen, Prembrin, and on MPA, they had more breast cancer cases. So the thought was that maybe it's the MPA. Then, you know, it's associated with a higher risk of venous thromboembolism. It's believed to be toxic to the brain. It's supposed to have an adverse metabolic profile leading to a greater risk of weight gain and hyperglycemia, etc. But the good news is that we are moving away from using that. And the most popular one, at least here in our clinic, is the bioidentical progesterone, which has a much safer profile based on observational evidence. It's not known to increase breast density, so probably does not increase the risk of breast cancer. So you're exactly right. Some of the adverse things that we saw in the WHI may have been because of the progestogen that we were using and not so much the estrogen component. Mm-hmm. How does the hormonal therapy that we prescribe for postmenopausal symptoms differ from women who are taking a uh, oral contraceptive? Sure. So the, I think the main thing is the dosing of the hormones because, you know, when you are talking contraception, you have to use doses high enough to suppress the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. Whereas when you are doing hormone therapy and if you're doing it right, you're just trying to use smaller doses to alleviate symptoms as opposed to suppress the axis. So I think it's a difference of the dose that you use. Now, having said that, a lot of patients are on birth control pills in their perimenopausal years because then the purpose is dual. Not only are you trying to help them through their menopausal symptoms, but you're trying to provide them contraception because still they had that final menstrual period, they are still at risk for a pregnancy, even though it's not a high risk. So I use that strategy sometimes when the patient is not at a high risk for venous thromboembolism, then I would give them or I give them a low dose birth control pill to serve the dual purpose of managing hot flashes and providing contraception. Okay. I know we've got a variety of other medications available for treating osteoporosis. So does estrogen play any role any longer in management of uh, bone disease? Again, an excellent question. So you know, yes, historically we know that estrogen has a beneficial effect on bone density. It reduces the risk of osteopenia, osteoporosis. But over the years, especially after the WHI, after estrogen became the bad player, the general practice was sort of moving away from using estrogen for bone health purposes. But the latest statement from the North American Menopause Society, which came out in uh, 2017, once again, they are talking about the bone benefits of estrogen. So to exemplify in a clinical situation, let's say you're sitting with a patient, 52-year-old, who's having some mild hot flashes which may or may not require estrogen, but let's say she has osteopenia. That may tip you in the direction of using estrogen for a patient like that. So in other words, to answer your question in a more crisp way, it probably is not used to manage just osteopenia or osteoporosis, but if she has other indications for hormone therapy, especially in a young individual, my my preference would be to use hormone therapy in a situation like that. 
The other thing that came out of the latest North American Menopause Society statement, which I really love, is let's say you have a 61-year-old sitting in your office and you're trying to counsel her, hey, I think it's time for you to consider going off hormone therapy and she doesn't want to do it and you're yourself not sure whether or not you should do it, then the bone density may help you decide one way or the other. So if this patient has osteopenia bordering on osteoporosis, for example, there is your reason to continue this patient on hormone therapy because then the risk-benefit balance is in the favor of benefit. So I've had patients who have been started on postmenopausal hormonal therapy, and it seems like the therapy doesn't prevent the postmenopausal symptoms. It just kind of delays them. So how, do we, how long do we use these medications, and do we tell our patients that you're still going to have these symptoms, it's just going to be delayed? Again, an excellent question. So it's not entirely true that hormone therapy delays the symptoms. these symptoms. What really happens is that we now know that the median duration of these symptoms is about seven years. Hmm? So for majority of patients, let's say you treat them for five to 10 years, when you stop it, this, these symptoms would have probably improved or resolved. But there is that proportion of patients who unfortunately continue to have severe hot flashes into their 60s and 70s. So it's not like hormone therapy delayed those symptoms. They were just there to begin with, and hormone therapy was managing them. So there is an increasing recognition that these symptoms can really last for decades. So my general strategy with my patients is that I start them when they are first going through menopause. Obviously, I do not start my women who are in their 60s or 70s for the reasons that I just shared with you earlier, that you know timing is everything. So you start a woman and that time the discussion is that you know the average duration of these symptoms is about seven years. So I'm anticipating that you know I would probably leave you on low dose hormone therapy for that duration of time. And I also tell them that you know in this first decade after menopause, not only am I expecting improvement in your symptoms, but because there are other anticipated benefits from hormone therapy, including reduction in heart disease risk, osteoporosis, et cetera. The, the balance is in the favor of benefits. Once a woman is beyond the age of 60, I think hormone therapy, and again, this is purely on the, based of, on the basis of observational evidence, but fairly strong observational evidence, that hormone therapy probably becomes neutral. So again, I don't think it's detrimental in terms of cardiovascular risk, but it becomes neutral. So that is an opportunity to, to discuss with the patients that you know the only purpose to keep you on hormone therapy at this point would be to manage symptoms. I can't say that it has any long-term benefits other than perhaps bone health benefits. So I counsel all of my patients to attempt to get off hormone therapy once they are beyond 60. Although I will say here that the guidelines have now moved away from suggesting a particular age as a cutoff for stopping hormone therapy. They say that this has to be an individualized approach. That's the buzzword there. Mm -hmm. So I try to get my patients off hormone therapy when they are between the ages of 60 to 65. And anecdotally, I can tell you that about half of them are able to come off. They don't have any symptoms and they are happy and that the breast cancer risk is not going up and what have you. But the other half, are not able to come off hormone therapy because they continue to have symptoms. And then the discussion is, okay, fine. These are the potential risks, these are the benefits. Would you try something non-hormonal or do you want to be on low-dose hormone, hormone therapy, recognizing that the only risk I worry about in that age group is potential increase in the risk of breast cancer because I do think that it's a function of how long you're on hormone therapy. And then I let the patient decide okay. after that discussion. Well, you've discussed transdermal form of estrogen, uh, oral. 
What about topical? What's the role for topical estrogen? Sure. So vaginal estrogen is the most effective therapy for management of genitourinary syndrome of menopause, meaning all the vaginal dryness and the urinary symptoms, including urinary frequency, etc., that go along with menopause. These symptoms are typically more prominent in the later postmenopausal years. So if a woman does not have any indication for systemic hormone therapy, let's say, then and her only symptoms are due to genitourinary syndrome of menopause, then vaginal estrogen is certainly appropriate. A lot of times what happens is that a woman is coming in with a lot of symptoms that mandate or that require the use of, or those would benefit with the use of systemic estrogen therapy. Then I start her only on systemic to see what happens to her vaginal symptoms and give her three, four weeks. For a lot of them, systemic approach alone is not enough to manage the vaginal symptoms. So I use systemic and vaginal estrogen together all the time, especially in my younger patients who've gone through surgical menopause and are sexually active, et cetera. So that's, that's the role of uh, vaginal estrogen therapy. So it can be either used by itself or in combination mm -hmm. with systemic estrogen therapy. Is it safe to use topical estrogen in a woman who's had a history of breast cancer? See, that's not known. Again, it seems like it's a safe approach. Again, based on observational evidence, it does not seem to increase the risk. But the thought there is that especially in estrogen receptor positive tumors, the concern is that the levels of estrogen may build up enough in the bloodstream to affect that cancer risk. So as a group here, our group practice is to avoid estrogen use if we can. So in our breast cancer survivors, the first line treatment for vaginal dryness really is lubrication and moisturizing. And then if that alone is not enough, then it's a matter of again weighing risk versus benefit. So what stage is the cancer? Is it ER positive or not? How many years out is the patient? Is this a young patient who's sexually active, et cetera? So all those things come into decision making. And now we have the vaginal DHEA suppositories that have been approved by the FDA for uh, use in GSM. So again, our oncology group here believes that that's a safer approach than using estrogen in the vagina because based on short-term trials, we know that vaginal DHEA does not increase estradiol levels in the bloodstream. And we don't know if that's the case if it's used over longer term uh, it's used for longer-term therapy, but at least based on short-term trials, it appears that it does not increase estradiol levels. And if we truly believe that estradiol level itself is a surrogate for predicting breast cancer risk, then it's probably a safer strategy. So in our practice, we try that before we recommend vaginal estrogen to our patients who've had breast cancer. Tell us a little bit about bioidentical hormones. What are they? Are they safer than the traditional ones that we prescribe? Sure. So, you know, when I hear the word bioidentical, it, it's almost like a marketing gimmick, if you will, because, you know, truly what the word means is bioidentical, meaning the hormones that are chemically, that are in structure, chemically identical to what our body makes, right? But in the world outside, bioidentical is thought to mean something that's compounded, something that's natural. But truly what the word really means is that these are hormones that are identical in structure chemically to what your own body makes. So the estradiol patch that we use all the time, the YVAL patch, is bioidentical. The progesterone pill that I prescribe to my patients, that's bioidentical. But the patients are not willing to buy that mm -hmm. because it's kind of instilled in their minds that it's the compounded medication that's the bioidentical therapy. But anyhow, to answer your question, it's probably not more effective. So like Prembrin is, has been in multiple studies shown to be as effective for a variety of symptoms as transdermal estradiol, but there's reason to believe that it's safer. 
And the other thing is that, you know, when you use transdermal estradiol, you can actually check levels because we have assays for that versus if you use Premprin, which is actually a composite of so many different estrogens, what are you going to track? What are you going to follow? So for that reason also, we prefer estradiol. We've been talking about hormone therapy with Dr. Ekta Kapoor, a Mayo Clinic general internist in the menopause and women's sexual health clinic. Thanks for your time, Ekta. Appreciate it. It was fun being here and talking to you. Mayo Clinic conferences welcome physicians and healthcare providers from across the country and the world. Learn from medical experts and network with colleagues at exciting destinations. Plan your next CME course by visiting ce.mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week. Music